0: My name is Stephen, and I am the young adult pastor here. And let's begin tonight by going to the Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is powerful. Your presence is real. Your peace is with us through storms. Lord, tonight we ask for a greater measure of revival, that you would revive our hearts. Lord, that you would raise the collective tide of a love and a passion for you. Lord, that there would be something about us as a people that would attract people to your kingdom. There'd be something so alive in us. Lord, we wouldn't be able to help but to tell it to every person that we know. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever experienced a personal, spiritual revival, a time you felt like you were drinking from the fountain of God's presence, his power and his peace. When I was in college over the summer, uh, one of the summers, I worked at this Christian sports camp and it was in the kind of the, the mountains of Pennsylvania, away from everything and everyone And these kids would come from all over the United States and we would do sports with them. We would teach them the Bible. But there was something about being separated from the distractions, not having good cell phone service, not having any internet, that you could hear God so much more clearly. And I remember those weeks in the summer as a time that God revived my heart. I felt so close to him. He was so big in my mind, in my heart, and my problems felt so insignificant and so small. I don't know if you can think back of a time that you felt really fully alive in Christ. Maybe it was the first time that you got saved, or the only time you got saved, hopefully. A time that you were in college, maybe your first service here. Maybe it was a small small group that you were in with some other brothers and sisters in the Lord. Maybe it was a church conference or a missions trip. But think back on that moment where you felt the closest to Jesus. And if you're honest with yourself tonight, how would you describe your relationship with God now? Removed from that experience. Are you swimming through the waters of God's presence Or does the landscape of your life feel more like a desert? The prophet Ezekiel was given a vision from God during a very dry spiritual climate in his nation. He was given a vision that revealed a coming revival. And it's my hope tonight that by looking at this passage, at Ezekiel's vision, we might experience a revival in our lives and in the lives of those around us. If you have a Bible, turn to Ezekiel chapter 47 verses 1 through 12. The title of my message tonight is The Trickling Sound of Revival. The Trickling Sound of Revival. There's a lot of imagery, there's a lot of symbolism in here. I want, just as you read this, to encourage you to just open your mind to what the Holy Spirit is conveying to you. Ezekiel 47, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door Of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate, and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east, and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river, verse 7. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Verse 10. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from Engedi to Enaglaim. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Ezekiel grew up during a time of national revival. He grew up under the reform of the nation of Judah under the King Josiah. The book of the law was discovered in the temple and it was read before the people. And in hearing the words of the law, the first five books of the Bible that we have today, the people repented. They returned to God and revival swept the nation. Ezekiel would have experienced it firsthand. He was the son of a priest. He grew up during the time of a great prophet of his day, Jeremiah. And yet, after King Josiah died in battle, things quickly went south. Ezekiel witnessed the political instability of his time that resulted from his leader's nation shifting their allegiance from different political powers. They were trusting in alliances and world powers instead of their God. And when their king, Jehoiachin, was overthrown, Ezekiel and some other prominent citizens of Judah were led into captivity into Babylon. And that's where Ezekiel spent the majority of his ministry, in captivity in Babylon, far from the people that he was ministering to, his homeland of Judah. Before Ezekiel's captivity, there was a first wave of exiles. You probably know the story of Daniel Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were taken into Babylon. Ezekiel was the second wave. But to the people's surprise, they thought that the disaster was over. There was a third wave coming. And the third wave was, would be more intense and even more disastrous than the first two. And Ezekiel was commissioned by God to warn the people, to prophesy to the people, that if they did not repent, impending judgment would come. And so the first 32 chapters of Ezekiel are pretty depressing. It's pretty much woe, judgment, disaster, impending doom towards Judah and its surrounding nations. Ezekiel predicts the fall of Jerusalem. He predicts the temple being destroyed. Meanwhile, the other prophets of his day were all calling him a liar and prophesying hope and peace. But sure enough, Ezekiel was right. In 586 B.C., Jerusalem was destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon completely ransacked the temple. And the people of God thought that God had forsaken them, that the God of the Babylonians was more powerful than their God because how could they go into captivity? How could their God, if he was superior, lead them into exile? And so all of a sudden, these lying prophets who had prophesied hope and peace while Ezekiel prophesied destruction and judgment, begin to tune in to Ezekiel's message. The city's been destroyed and they join in to Ezekiel's chorus. They start prophesying hopelessness and despair and judgment and woe. But all of a sudden, Ezekiel changes his tune. With the city completely ransacked, the temple, the symbol of God's presence and his power destroyed, Ezekiel sees visions of life. Of restoration, of hope. In Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 29, God says, I will not hide my face anymore from them, referring to the people, when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. 14 years after the temple was destroyed, God gives Ezekiel a vision. And it's a vision in chapters 40 through 46 of a renewed temple. And that's really good news for the people because with that temple, the original one one being gone, they thought God had abandoned them. But God promises through this vision that Ezekiel sees that he is going to rebuild a temple, that he's not given up on his people. How many of you are excited about the fact that God doesn't give up on his people? Amen. Amen. And in this vision Ezekiel has, he has a tour guide, a man who's described looking like bronze, and he's showing him the temple, and then he shows him something that flows from the temple, and that's where we are right now in Ezekiel chapter 47. Look at verse one with me. It says, "Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east." Now you and I don't think too much about water, except maybe when we have to pay our water bill, or our uh, children maybe drop a glass of water, which happens every day at my household, five times for every meal. We don't think much about water, but for the ancient Israelites, water was a really big deal. It was very significant. They lived in a dry desert climate where water was paramount to life. You didn't have water, you didn't have vegetation, you didn't have food, and people would eventually die. That's why when you read the scriptures, water And more specifically, a river is very significant. It's a common theme from Genesis to Revelation because the water of God, the river of God, symbolizes his presence, his provision, his abundance. The first mention of a river is actually in the second chapter of Genesis, the very beginning, where the writer of Genesis describes in his creation account a river that flowed in the Garden of Eden that branched into four rivers And this river watered all of the vegetation. The psalms depict a river that bring that brought gladness and abundance to the city of God and his people. The psalmist says in Psalm 46:4, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. What is a people far from God, a nation that's in captivity, a land that is cursed because of the sin of the people? Need most? They need the river of God. And God, through Ezekiel's vision, promises just that. What is the source of this river? Where is it going to come from? Well, water, in verse 1, it says, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple. The water was coming from the temple of God, the house of God, his throne. Now, I love a good vacation, This summer, I was at a vacation house in a lake with my family, and while you all were slaving away at work, I was riding jet skis and going water skiing, and it was amazing. I love a good promotion at work. I love a new car or a new house, but the source of revival isn't in a day of rest or a new job or a car or time away on vacation, the source of true revival, when our minds are filled with big thoughts of God, when our problems shrink in view of God's majesty, when we're filled with faith and passion for Jesus to share with others, true personal revival can only flow from the throne room of God. And perhaps tonight, this revival feeling fully alive, seems far from where you find yourself presently. And I can assure you when Ezekiel saw this vision and prophesied it to the people he was ministering to, it felt a lot further for them. Remember, at this time, Israel didn't have even a spiritual pulse, let alone the hope of a revival. A few chapters earlier, there was the famous passage of the Valley of Dry Bones This was a nation that was spiritually dead, not dying, not like on the verge, dead. And what the man shows Ezekiel is not a powerful rushing river at first. He shows him water trickling from the throne room of God. Look at verse 2. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Now, that word trickle is from a Hebrew word, mepakim. And that word was a word commonly used to describe water that was being poured out of a bottle. A very small amount of water. It would be as if you took a two liter Coke, flipped it upside down, and the Coke was guzzling out slowly. But that small amount of water that was trickling out is a source of hope for us tonight. Because while a powerful river of revival might seem like a far-fetched fantasy when you're in a desert, a trickle, a trickle is within reach. And while I've had my fair share of mountaintop experiences, I've been on missions trips and retreats and conferences powerful sermons, I can say nothing has changed me more than the slow trickle of spending time with God every morning. It feels like I'm not being changed. It feels like I might be wasting my time. Sometimes I can't remember what I even read that morning, but the slow daily trickle works wonders in the life of a believer. Nothing changed me more than the slow trickle of the years that my parents prayed with me every night. While I can recount maybe a handful of those powerful sermons, the sermons that seems like the preacher's preaching the paint off the walls and you can remember every moment, you get the goosebumps, I can tell you it's the slow trickle of hearing solid, faithful preaching every Sunday for weeks, for months, most of which I can't remember the sermons, but for years that shaped and formed my heart. The river starts with a trickle. So if you're in a drought tonight... You're dry and weary of perhaps waiting for God to provide you a spouse. Maybe you've all but given up on a prodigal son or daughter who hasn't come home yet. Maybe you haven't read your Bible in weeks. And the powerful rushing waters of revival seems like wishful thinking. Can you believe God tonight for a trickle? But if we're honest, we're not always big fans of a trickle. Because a trickle takes a long time. We like the prospect of finding a potential geyser, the excitement of a new job gushing forth. It's a lot more exciting than the trickle of finding God in the current job that we don't really like. We love the fire hydrant of Pastor Brett preaching once a week when we feel the presence of God and Pastor Tiffany leads us into God's presence, but it's hard to wake up for the trickle of time spent with God each morning. We have no problem sending our kids to Camp Collide for a weekend where they'll be drenched by the presence of the Holy Spirit. But the trickle of weekly family devotions where our kids are squealing and not listening, we feel like we're wasting our time, but we're laying foundations and biblical principles in them, that would take too long, that would be too hard, or so we think. If we're honest, we love the big numbers of the thousands saved at Pentecost, but we don't like very much the parable of the mustard seed, the small beginnings of transformation. But the river of God starts with a trickle. But here's the thing about a trickle coming from God's throne. It doesn't stay a trickle. Look at verse 3. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. See, the man in the vision, Ezekiel's guide, is showing him that this is no normal trickle. And we don't measure in cubits, so it's kind of hard to figure out what's going on here. But a cubit, a thousand cubits, equaled a fourth of a mile. So this trickle, a fourth of a mile, the water was ankle deep. And then a fourth of a mile, it was knee deep. A fourth of a mile, it was waist deep. A fourth of a mile, It was so deep, nobody could cross. This trickle becomes an impassable rushing river within a mile. And the kingdom of God may start like a mustard seed, but that mustard seed becomes the largest of all trees. The kingdom of God starts with 12 terrified men in an upper room, wondering what they're gonna do now that their crucified Lord is dead. Then he resurrects, and then they're in this upper room waiting on the Holy Spirit, and then Pentecost happens, and the kingdom of God becomes thousands of people coming to know Christ in one moment. The kingdom of God may start with you as the one Christian alone in your secular workplace. But the faithful trickle of you staying in your word, sharing the gospel with coworkers, starting a Bible study at lunch, quickly turns into a mighty rushing river of God's presence and power. The kingdom of God starts with serving and loving one of the many unsaved members of your family. And then revival hits when that first one gives their life to Christ, and then the next one, and then the next one. Look at verse 6, and he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? There's something about the transformative power of the river of God that has a have you seen this effect. I remember being in, uh, in college, there was 40 guys on my hallway in my freshman year. And thanks to people in this church who poured into my life, when I went to college, I was ready to see some people come to know Jesus, Amen. <laughs> And I had a vision, just a dream. God, what would happen if you just saved my whole entire hall? What could we do at Virginia Tech? What kind of revival would start? Just, you started with the guys in my hall. And after a year of getting in these guys' lives and praying and sharing the gospel with them, there was only one guy who gave his life to Christ. And it was the one guy you didn't, you know, you just thought nothing was going to ever happen with him. He was the guy at the end of the hallway that he just played his guitar and did engineering homework all day long. Was not the most influential guy. Was not the guy I thought, you know, was going to lead anything. I'll never forget at the end of the year, thinking that that year was a failure, he came into my room and he said, Stephen, I have a couple friends of mine who, uh, who aren't believers, but I, I got to warn you, these guys are really jacked up. Like, you thought I was jacked up. Wait till you see these guys. And next year, they're going to be coming to Virginia Tech. And um, I, f- I figured we could, we could start a Bible study. But the only thing is I don't know anything about the Bible. So when I say we, I mean really you. And I'll show up and I'll bring them. So here we were in this Bible study the, the first day of school the next year. And I walk into his apartment. And his buddies are there. I don't know any of them. They're all looking at me like I'm crazy. They're from, you know, maybe the country. I'm from the city. You know, they, tr- they tried to convince me at their house they didn't have a dishwasher. I believed them. That was kind of the, the, the environment they grew up in. And so we're sitting here in the living room of this apartment. Six guys and a girl. All the guys are in their underwear. There's joints. There's beer bottles. Guys are putting out cigarettes. Guys are coming in high, putting down their joint as they walk into the Bible study. And this girl's so crazy, she doesn't seem to mind the fact that all the guys are in uh, in their underwear. She's just happy to be there. She's along for the ride. She's with one of the guys who's sleeping with her, and it was a mess. And what gave me some hope was that there were two guys. One grew up in a Christian home. And the other guy was supposedly a Christian, but then I found out the guy who was a Christian was backsliding. He was worse than all of them. And the guy who supposedly grew up in a Christian home fell asleep every night. We did Bible study. (laughs) That was the spiritual potential of that Bible study. Then all of a sudden, one of the guys that was sleeping with the girl got saved. And he led the girl to the Lord because he said, we can't sleep together anymore. And she said, look, I knew, you, I knew you before. I know something happened in you. This guy that you're talking about must be real. She gets saved. She goes back to her campus and starts leading a Bible study there. The guy who was backsliding figured, you know what, I better get serious with this. When the guy who was sleeping woke up and said, hey, you need to repent. You're supposed to be the one living right out of all of us. <laughs> the dude addicted to drugs and alcohol, he was pretty much addicted to everything. He gets radically saved. We baptized him. The other, one of the guys got baptized in our bathtub. He said, look, I want to get baptized right now. We baptized it right in that, in, in that apartment. And over the course of a couple of years, these guys got radically saved. Now one is a missionary. One is an associate pastor at a mega church. Another is a, it's amazing. The couple's at a, at a church leading in I mean, it's just what God is, but it starts with a trickle. The kingdom of God has a, have you seen this effect? The trickle becomes a river. It's not just the size of the river that's so impressive in this vision. It's also the transformation that it brings. Verse 8. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Araba and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. Now, some of this, the geography, the topography is a little bit challenging because we didn't grow up in, in ancient Israel. But the sea that's referred to here is the Dead Sea. And I've actually uh, got the privilege of swimming in the Dead Sea. It's pretty crazy because it feels like literally you're floating on top of water, because the the water is made up of 24 to 26 percent minerals compared to like the saltwater ocean of four to six percent minerals. There's such a high concentration of minerals that the sea is uninhabitable for fish and any kind of plant life. Y'all, it's called the Dead Sea for a reason. There's nothing living in the Dead Sea. Okay. So what happens when this river of life meets a dead sea head on? Something has to give. What happens when the fresh living river meets the deadest place on earth? So dead it's called the dead sea. Well, it's the same thing that happens to darkness when God says, let there be light. It's the same thing that happens to a well-fortified city when a group of men and women start marching around it and blowing trumpets. It's the same thing that happens to a dead body when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. It's the same thing that happens in my life, my wife's life, when a doctor tells you that your daughter will never be born alive, only to have a two-year-old breathing, walking, talking, laughing miracle. When life and death collide, Death has to bow its knee to the river of life. Look at verse nine. And whenever wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh. Now zone in or key in on this phrase right here. So everything will live where the river goes. See the Dead Sea has now become the living sea. Everything will live where the river goes. That means that when the river of life touches a dead marriage, it comes to life. When the river of God touches some serious sickness, the sickness has to go. When the river goes into your salty, toxic work environment, the waters have to become fresh wherever the life flowing sickness healing generational curse breaking river flows everything will live so the question is not what will happen to the dead things when the living living river touches them that's pretty clear from the passage the question for us tonight is where will we allow this river to go the only thing that can stop the river of god is not the dead things. It's not the dead work environments. It's not the boss who appears to have no soul. It's not the marriage on the verge of falling apart. The only thing that can stop the river of God is if we choose to cut ourselves off from its source, to stop the river from trickling and then flowing and then rushing in our lives lest we think that this promise is just a promise for Ezekiel and his nation, Jesus, during his ministry, picked up on this theme of the river. And he declared that this river was available to anybody who would believe. John chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So I don't care tonight how far you run from God, how dry you feel, how unqualified you might think that you are. There is a river of God that can flow from your heart tonight. Revival can take place in your heart tonight. Your affections for Christ, your faith, your boldness, experiencing the peace and the presence of God can happen in a renewed way tonight. And whenever you look at prophecy a vision like what Ezekiel Ezekiel experienced, the question is, when was this fulfilled or when will it be fulfilled? Because prophecy always has a fulfillment. Has this river come? If not, when will it come? Because this is some pretty radical stuff. For the people of Israel, there was a partial fulfillment to Ezekiel's vision. There was a new temple that was rebuilt. There was a return of the people from exile back into their homeland, there was a restoration of the land in five thirty six b c when fifty thousand of them came out of Babylon, but not close to what Ezekiel envisioned. The answer to when this prophecy will be fulfilled is in verse twelve look at look at it with me, it says, on the banks." On both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. The language here, the symbols, the figures of Ezekiel's river are almost identical to another river. We talked about the river in the very beginning of our book, Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. But The Holy Scriptures end with the promise of a river. The last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, 1 through 4. And as I read these four verses, listen to the familiarity of this passage. If you were paying attention before, you'll notice the same imagery, the same symbolism, the same type of river. In fact, this passage is referring to the same river that Ezekiel saw. Revelation 22, 1-4. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of that tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Ezekiel's vision was so big, was so glorious, was so transformative that it could not refer to anything fully in this present age. John, the apostle John, one of Jesus' disciples, saw the same vision, the same river in Revelation, and its fulfillment is in the new heavens and the new earth. My dear brothers and sisters, tonight, the pains, the suffering, the trials that we go through, the pressures in life, sometimes we lose sight of the larger vision, the larger storyline of God's plan. God made a garden in the very beginning. He made a paradise, a place free from evil, a place free from sin, a place just for him and man to enjoy forever, a place where a river would water all the vegetation, where there'd be life and presence and peace and abundance forever. And Adam and Eve messed that up. And man continues to mess it up. You and I continue to mess it up every time that we sin. We continue to drink from the dead sea of our sin rather than to allow God to transform our salty, toxic natures into fresh water. We prefer to supply our own idolatrous rivers, ones that we can control their paths, than to allow the river of God to run the course God sets for it into those narrow crevices and deep valleys we don't want him near. And yet, God has not given up on his original plan of eternal fellowship with man one day jesus will return the defiled earth will be renewed and the river of life that ezekiel saw and the apostle john saw will run its course in fullness every leaf every tree full fruit a full harvest, free from sin, free from death, free from disease. We will drink from this river. We will be with Christ forever. That's the storyline. That's where the story of redemption is heading. It's heading to a great climax when we are with Jesus Christ enjoying the river of God for all eternity. And until that day, until that day, We drink deeply from the living waters of Jesus Christ and allow the trickles from his presence to turn into a river, to transform our lives and the lives of those around us. My friends tonight, drink deeply. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we get to play a part in your story. Lord, we know the beginning, but also the end. We know the amazing, glorious news of Jesus Christ. Him dying, Him resurrecting, and the life we now lead in Him. Lord, that river that we will see, for those of us who are in Christ, at the end, Lord, we can experience life, the presence, the power of that river here and now. And tonight, I just feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to ask, if you're in need of a revival, a revival of your soul, where the things of God become big and the problems become small, would you stand to your feet tonight? I'm not talking about making a decision to follow Christ for the first time. I'm talking about being in need of revival. And just in a posture of receptivity, whatever that looks like for you, it might be kneeling, it might be lifting your hands, it might be bowing your head quietly. But I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you afresh tonight. For the river of God to flow in your life. For you to jump all the way in. Ask the Holy Spirit to come into every crevice, every valley that you've closed off to him. Lord, tonight here are your people Lord, our desire for you isn't what it ought to be. It's not as strong as it should be. And yet, God, we come just asking for a trickle. We come confidently, not because of what we've done, but because of the grace of Jesus Christ that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Lord, we confidently lift our heads to you tonight and say, God, pour out the waters of revival on us. God, pour out the revival on our family, Lord. God, pour out the river of life into the dead areas of our hearts and of our lives. Lord, we invite you to flow. Holy Spirit, the living waters flow in our lives. Increase the tide from a trickle to a flow to a mighty rushing river. Lord, let us drink deeply from that river tonight. we receive a greater measure of you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.